Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Five Things Podcast. I am masked, but still talking to all of you, live from Gray Headquarters in downtown New York. I've got some podcast veterans here with me today. We have Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Morning, Kenny. And Juliana is back. Hey, Juliana. Hi. Hello. Welcome. Before we dive into the five things this week, we just wanted to give a quick shout out to our sister podcast, Gray Matter, which if you haven't listened to it yet, all of the episodes are now available for both season one and season two, wherever you listen to podcasts. Gray Matter is really fascinating. It's the story of how ideas come to life, featuring the people who created them. It's really worth a listen. So if you like this podcast and you like us, go give it a listen. Right, Amanda? I love it. It's my second favorite podcast after listening to myself on this one. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, just, oh, that's right. This one. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. With that, let's dive into the five things. First, Twitch streamers dominated election night coverage. Then we'll talk about a verified faux Elon Musk account celebrating the election with a crypto scam. We'll talk about Facebook and TikTok blocking misinformation hashtags. TikTok announcing new agreement with Sony Music, very specific. And then a very special thing at the end to celebrate Baby Shark becoming YouTube's most viewed video ever, 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 ever. That was an echo. With that, Amanda, tell us about Twitch streamers dominating election night coverage. Election night. Wow. At the time of this recording, I think that was about a week ago, um, almost two by the time this comes out. And, you know, election night is a funny phrase for it. Election week, I'd say. Um, Obviously, it was pretty, pretty big roller coaster. But there was one kind of quiet hero of the week, and I think a little bit unexpected. and, And it was actually Twitch as a platform. Um, A lot of the Twitch streamers that were speaking about the updates across all of the election news coming in were actually one of the most widely watched channels. And I use channels in quotes because I think this is is new channels of election night. Um, And specifically one streamer, Hassan Piker, he streamed for 16 hours straight on on Tuesday on election night. And he garnered, I think, a total unique viewership of around 227,000, which is almost a quarter of a million people. And what's really interesting about his stream is he he's not a, a pundit. He is not, you know, a, a news anchor. He really was just his stream consisted of him talking to his audience and viewers, refreshing feeds, had a, a couple of different, you know, news platforms up that he was walking through with his viewers on, you know, as the electoral count went up and we got info in slowly but surely across the country. So for two hundred and twenty seven thousand people to be basically joining this this regular guy for for lack of better word i mean he is a journalist but he's not a political journalist um pretty nuts to be honest and i think this is is a culmination of what we saw all all election season of you know mainstream media is always the trusted source but what we're seeing is a lot of people really using social platforms whether it's instagram twitter facebook twitch uh, parlor, you know, whatever else you want to include there. There's a lot of, I would say, 
amateur. I don't know if that's a negative word, but there's a lot of amateur reporting of news. Um, that's really interesting and fascinating because there's an authenticity to it. Um, but on the other side of it too, that obviously causes a little bit of concern around how, how can the platforms ensure that the news and the information getting out is accurate. So let's jump on that, right? First and foremost, 145 million people plus voted in the election. So the fact that there's another 110 million people watching the coverage is just a crazy staggering number, uh, which I think is, is really interesting. I also think this notion of misinformation and fake news on election night was a massive topic. It's one we heard a lot about. Um, and I think that when the dust settles on the 2020 election and we get through everything, um, the, all of the networks are going to be doing some soul searching about how content impacts our democratic systems. Um, so I'll be very curious to see how it goes. Um, but I think what we now know is the nature of news coverage has changed forever. And therefore, it is now time to do the responsible thing and figure out how to manage it. Juliana, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'll am admit I'm coming in hot as a Hassan Piker fangirl. So, you know, I might be a little biased here. But what I think the what I think this really highlights, both to Amanda's point about authenticity, but it also shows the fact that especially in an election where there was so much turnout and so many people who maybe aren't involved in the, like in politics generally, trying to get involved and be educated and be informed, that there is the necessity for someone to do more than just tell you the information, but to interpret it, right? So like the unique value that Hassan Piker had to his audiences, even, you know, other commentators, like uh, Amanda was saying, the amateur commentators, the value is interpretation. And I think really where we see kind of the, the failure for um, like mainstream uh, media, which I, I hate using that term, but yeah, mainstream media, is that there's the desire to seem so uh, impartial that you're not actually telling people what they're supposed to take away from it. You know, you had a situation where people are being told that in reality, they might not know who the president is for four or five days. And yet the information is rolling out and you have, you know, Wolf Blitzer trying to call uh, different states as though, you know, there isn't going to be absentee ballots being submitted. So I think it just shows the fact that like people, especially as younger audiences get involved in the democratic process, they're going to need a lot more assistance in making sense of it. It's a very fascinating time. I'm glad that we were able to have this discussion. I think it will continue to develop and this will not be the last time that we discuss this on this podcast. Um, so moving on, I'm the timekeeper. As they say, I'm the masked timekeeper <laughs> coming up this year on Fox after the masked singer and the masked dancer. That's not terrifying. No, <laughs> it sounds very creepy. Um, so the next thing is that a verified foe, Elon Musk, celebrated the election with a crypto scam. I actually think talking about this idea of wearing a mask makes it sound more <laughs> keeperish than it actually was. Um, so as the 2020 election was reaching its peak in terms of um, the fever pitch around it and what was happening and the vote counting and all of the turmoil, uh, a verified account on Twitter appearing to be Elon, Elon Musk came out and said uh, that he was going to give away crypto currency on a website, musk-coins.com. Um, and in doing so, if you followed the instructions, it would take you to a page where you could actually receive cryptocurrency from Elon Musk, except 
this was not Elon Musk. Bum, bum, bum. It was a verified account that actually changed its name to Elon Musk and was commenting on posts from the president with this link. Um, and you'd be taken to a fake medium page if you went to the link telling you that the marketing department at Tesla came up with the idea and it was a special giveaway of crypto, um, which is just insane. Um, the scammer had received around $32,000 worth of Bitcoin and over $6,000 worth of Ether, which is just crazy that <laughs> people fell for it. Um, and if you went to the fake Elon Musk Twitter page, um, it only had 16,000 followers, which Elon Musk has way more than that. Um, and, and this just sort of calls out a flaw in the system of what Twitter has when it comes to these verified accounts and the ability to change names. Um, and I think this is something they're well aware of. And it's just it, it was just a crazy moment in time. But the lesson learned here is take a beat. Look at who you're following. Look at what they're saying. Make sure it seems accurate. Don't fall for these scams, people. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, I think uh, we're talking about the evolution of influencer content, the em uh, evolution of high-profile people on these channels, and really understanding the power and influence they have to actually get people to do something, to take an action. Um, so open it up to dialogue and, and debate here. But I think it's a pretty straightforward story. But um, feel bad for all those people who fell for it. Um, but uh, I don't know, Amanda, Juliana, anything, any thoughts on this one? I mean, this is the second time this has happened. Last time it was on a pretty wide scale of like various celebrities getting hacked by clicking on a similar link. And then, you know, kind of the chain of scamming happening from there. And Twitter actually now has or was supposed to have something where if someone changes their handle to be Elon Musk, their account gets locked because it is such like a prevalent issue. I just think it's so funny because you think of like cryptocurrency, you think of the, the Twitter base as being like a little bit more on the, the cutting edge of social. But I mean, it just goes to show that a, a standard phishing scam can impact basically anyone. It's so true. It's so basic. <laughs> and it's it was... also like, it's terrifying because this this begs me to think about everything happening with deep fakes too. And knowing that there are people like Elon Musk whose fan base will just click random links. Like that's 1995, like internet 101 things that you don't do. It's terrifying. And I think this also is like the larger conversation around critical thinking on these platforms is, you know, having the structure and the format and the user experience that actually allows people to assess something, you know, to your point, Juliana, flag things that are are, are off or incorrect or or maybe need another layer of, you know, understanding or speculation or thought behind it. But oh my gosh, imagine if this was partnered with a deep fake video of Elon Musk, you know, touting this, you know, offer like, it, and that's easy. People can do things like that. So my gosh, this is like <laughs> the beginning of the next era of phishing scams. And I, it should be talked about more so that, you know, we don't do what we did when the internet first came out and people yeah, are trying to wire Elon money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, yes. All of that, Amanda. <laughs> All of that. <laughs> Juliana, let's talk about Facebook and TikTok blocking misinformation hashtags. Oh, man, would I love to. So uh, for anyone who's unaware, you know, we had that election last week and 
during the time period, especially after the, the first day, Facebook and TikTok um, were blocking hashtags used to spread election conspiracy theories. So especially the ones that were talking about, you know, votes being illegitimate or the election being stolen or, you know, some substantiated Sharpie gate rumors. And while I love, you know, I think we spoke um, the last couple of times I was here about Facebook and and social media taking a role and kind of helping uh, ensure that people are getting the right information. I th- I kind of get fundamental heebie-jeebies whenever the solution a site takes is to block the conversation and the conspiracy entirely. Because you look on the mirror end, and after Facebook, TikTok, even Twitter to an extent started flagging um, the, these pieces of misinformation, you saw an uptick in downloads to this app called Parler. And so Parler is this like far right sort of answer to Twitter. And I think it saw like 2 million downloads right after the first election night. And so in that situation, you get this, this, uh, this danger, essentially, of losing an entire section of the population to an echo chamber and this rabbit hole. So what I think this kind of highlights for social media sites is to look past just kind of what they think is like the simple solution of blocking things, but there almost needs to be more of like a sociological arm within their wings explaining what actually happens in the long run if you're forcing people to go into small communities where they only talk amongst themselves. It's such a good point. I I think you've laid it out perfectly. And this goes back to the first thing that we talked about with Twitch and the election night coverage. There's going to be a reckoning on these channels about how they handle these types of things. And I think the election, I think we can speak kind of freely here and say would have had catastrophic results if that misinformation continued. We got very lucky with how the the election has sort of come to an end, um, or at least perceived end. Um, but by the end by the end of all of this, if the social media networks don't take this as a call to figure out how to handle misinformation across the board and handle the way that uh, people are manipulating the channels for their own selfish um, pursuits. That, that, that's, a, that's a big issue. Uh, Amanda, what do you think? Well, I was actually going to ask you a question, Kenny, um, from your expertise. Is there a world in which, you know, all of the major uh, social media networks kind of create like a, a UN of sorts that kind of they can, you know, have constant conversations around, you know, how their platforms are used and like this larger picture that Juliana is talking about of like, you know, all these micro changes inevitably end up in a certain kind of human behavior that I think is is not great for anyone. Is that There's, crazy there, to think about? There is, um, if you've ever played a video game, there, there are, there's the ESRB ratings, right? And the ESRB ratings, if I if I'm not mistaken, were cur- connect created by the industry to self-regulate in an effort to prevent the government from coming in and regulating gaming content. And this is decades ago, right? I think it would behoove the social media industry and the channels themselves to have their own internal body that self-regulates before it is done for them. Um, While it turned out that soon-to-be former President Trump's futile attempts to regulate and rid himself of TikTok because of what they did to him in his rallies, you see the danger of what happens 
when the government is responsible for managing and and hindering how these channels can behave. It can be done in a way that impacts elections. It can be done in a way that impacts public opinion and discourse. Therefore, if we want to protect the integrity of the channels while creating some sort of regulatory body to ensure that they are moving forward, understanding that misinformation is now becoming a part of the DNA of our society, it is, it is critical that they do that. It is critical. And frankly, if you are a brand or a marketer and you are listening to this, you want the channels to do that because otherwise it will turn the channels that you are leveraging to reach your consumers into a place of mistrust. So I think that when these channels are first and foremost an ad network, the safety and security of that ad network and the, and the, um, the trust and transparency in the ad network is critical. And I think, honestly, Amanda, kind of to your question, what's preventing the ability for something like that to happen is you basically can't turn a light on in the Snapchat offices without someone asking if Facebook's going to you know, overtake it or if TikTok is going to swoop in. And like, if there's a greater respect for this you know, rising tide lifts all boats mentality, then there might be the the possibility of greater collaboration, but every piece of conversation around these apps or these these sites is about competition and you know biting off part of their audience because they're peeved at how some like um, operational thing changed. And so, just trying to show the light that you know this this just really isn't a sustainable model, and you need to do something collectively or else we're all screwed. Um, will be helpful. <laughs> Comforting. Well said, Juliana. <laughs> the name of this of this episode is going to be "We're All Screwed." <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, um, next up, we want to talk about something very important, which is TikTok announcing a new agreement with Sony Music. Not just any music house, Sony Music House. Sony so Music pull, House. So pull out your Walkman. Sony your has a lot of great artists, and I will say that I have some friends there, and I know they do great stuff. So whether or not you believe it, Sony has some great artists on their roster. And what we're talking about is is that TikTok announced a new licensing deal with Sony that allows creators to use, um, you know, uh, songs that are in the Sony Music label in their TikTok clips. So it perhaps not. Um, life-changing of an update. But I think what this is, is one kind of small step in, in the ongoing conversation we've been having on, on this show too, around how music is leveraged in these platforms and how it can, in the future, benefit the artists and the labels in a way where, you know, if there's a TikTok dance or trend that takes off and someone doesn't know or does know what the song is, like obviously that impacts the artist. Um, and I think the larger question for a lot of these platforms is how do we include the artists who are also creators to be very clear, like there's creators making these videos and there's creators making this music. So it really should be kind of a, a shared benefit of all of these kind of deals and licensing agreements. Um, so this is one kind of small step in, in that direction. But there's also a, another conversation as it relates to brands um, who obviously have different regulations and restrictions around use of music. So TikTok specifically um, recently updated its rules around kind of commercial use for for music on the platform. 
and also providing what they call like a royalty free music library for brands to use. So I'm curious and, and I don't know if we have the answer to this just yet. Every All of this is kind of new. But I think there's an, the next step to this conversation is how can brands work more closely and I guess seamlessly with labels and with artists and with, you know, um, anyone else kind of producers making music on the platform to work a little bit more hand in hand, because right now there's a little bit of a step between brands and the music that we use in the work that we make. And sorry, sorry, I'm just like chomping at the bit because I love this. I like, especially in respect to music, I find, you know, with all things, action, equal opposite reaction. So, you know, once uh, live music became really the only way for artists to make money, like having, you know, full on albums wasn't nearly as important. Once streaming on Spotify became the main way for small artists to make money, you had a lot of just kind of a deluge of very short songs. The average song, you know, time, uh, the average time for a song reduced with the kind of ad- uh, adoption of streaming. And then with TikTok, you know, there already was kind of a movement of artists creating songs specifically for the danceability component. So, you know, the use of the trap beat, the use of like specific drops, the the instructional nature of it. So yes, totally in love with, you know, what this will mean for brands, but I'm also really excited for what this will mean for music and the way that it might change how artists are creating their songs for the purposes of kind of pulling some of that TikTok revenue. All right. Well, I'm glad Juliana was as excited about that as you were, Amanda, because to me, that's just an update. And it's very, it's good to know, <laughs> but excited to see. Um, I'm pretty sure Dixie D'Amelio wrote a song called Be Happy. And it like ended up charting on Billboard. because it, cured, of... it also cured my depression. <laughs> Did it? No. <laughs> oh, I but fell for it. Oh, I just... <laughs> I just fell for your comment like it's a faux Elon Musk crypto scam. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, all right. Well, everyone. Our fifth thing. Podcast shark do 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 podcast shark do 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 baby shark has become YouTube's most viewed video ever. We're talking ever, ever, ever. It just passed Despacito as the most viewed video on YouTube ever. 7.04 billion views in less than five years. Am I being fact-checked right now? I see you fact-checking me. No, I'm confused because I am wondering where all those K-pop folks went on YouTube's viewership. Well, small children needing to be distracted probably come in greater numbers than K-pop stands. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about the song. It was recorded by a Korean-American singer uh, and produced by the South Korean educational company Pink Fong. And it was originally uploaded to YouTube on June 17, 2016. It has become one of the world's most recognized songs, and it broke into the Billboard Top 100 in 2019. It surpassed Despacito, which came out in 2017 from Luis Fonzi and Daddy Yankee, which previously held the record for most views on the platform, Um, which is just fascinating. There was also a version of Baby Shark that was uploaded this year to promote proper hand hygiene during coronavirus, which I think is very interesting. Um, So overall, it's catchy. 
it's an earworm. It's educational. I know I have two nieces and two nephews, and they all sing Baby Shark all the time. Um, so I, I think it's it, this isn't surprising to me. Uh, but Amanda, Juliana, any thoughts on the shark sensation? I just wanted to retract my question because I did fact check myself and all of those Blackpink uh, and K-pop records we were talking about were for premieres. So you're absolutely correct. Um, I mean, this isn't surprising. Um, I just I was hoping that at the end of 2020, I could get the song out of my head. And it feels like maybe I'm not going to be able to do that. The thing is, it's just it's so simple, the song, but it has a virality that is just astounding. And, you know, I, I recognize that there is like a science to jingle making and there's like a science to creating that type of content. But it's just so intriguing to think that when we presume that we've kind of moved so far away from that, um, you know, because everyone can kind of has a variety of distractions that they can turn to instead, that you can still create something that essentially becomes like a cultural icon based off a song. I love it. I think it's so I think it's so cool. I think the fact that it's not some like artsy fartsy thing, that it's not some like random Adele song. Um it, it really is is uh I love it. I'm so happy. And, I love Adele. And one could argue it's like the least produced of all of the top ten most viewed songs and videos. Like I'm sure the amount of effort and you know production that went into Baby Shark is nothing close to Despacito and there's just something kind of ironic and funny about that well with that we our time together has come to an end it's so sad but we'll be back next week don't worry if you have any thoughts or comments or questions for the show please feel free to reach us at podcasts at gray.com that's podcasts at gray.com Continue to listen. We love you all. Thank you for voting. Thank you for being here. Stay safe, stay smart, stay social. The Five Things are written and researched by Andrew Patti and Grace McDougall. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.